0: Alright brothers and sisters, it's time to take out our Bibles. So if you have yours, please take your Bible out and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I would deeply encourage you to bring your Bibles to church on Sundays. And as you study your Bibles here and study your Bibles at home, you can always be looking at your Bible, your copy of Scripture. You can also write notes in it and All kinds of benefits to bringing your Bibles to church on Sundays, but we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 26 here for a moment, or here in just a moment. Now, I don't know if you know this about God's Word, but there's a passage in the book of Isaiah, chapter 55, where God tells us that when He sends His Word out, that it does not return to Him void, It will not return to Him void. But when He sends His Word out, it will accomplish the purposes for which He sent it. And the reason I tell you that this morning is because every Sunday when we meet here, I'm sitting here thinking, what is God going to do today? What what we're about to do and what, what Knox did as he read aloud the words of God. What we're doing here is like letting a lion out of its cage. What's going to happen when we do? God's word is the greatest power the universe has ever known. And that's, just, that's not just a saying to try to get you to, to feel like it's a big deal. Think about it. What happened at the beginning of all things? God spoke and stuff existed, that did not exist before. God's Word is the most powerful force the universe has ever known, and we're about to let it out of its cage. And so don't say you weren't warned. What is going to happen to you because of what is about to happen right now? Today's sermon you might see in your bulletin is entitled, God's Nobodies. And you'll see what I mean by that title when we come to our text. But I want to take you back, before we come to that text, I want to take you back thousands of years ago to the nation of Israel. Round about the timeline of your Bible, this comes right around the book of 1 Samuel. And the nation of Israel, at this point, has come into the Promised Land, but they have not yet had any kind of king over them. The Lord has been their king. The Lord has been their leader. But the people get complacent and the people get comfortable and the people start to look at all the nations around them and they see all the nations around them have a king. And so they say, we want a king too. And they tell Samuel. Samuel back then was God's foremost prophet, his mouthpiece to the people. Samuel at this point was kind of like Moses back in Exodus. And Samuel hears they're crying out for a king and Samuel's grieved to his heart because Samuel knows what this means. It means they're rejecting God. They're rejecting God's leadership over them. They want a king for themselves. And so Samuel goes to the Lord. He tells the Lord what they said. And God says, Samuel, I know you're upset, but don't don't worry so much. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. And Samuel, I'm going to give them what they want. And then they're going to see what happens when they get what they want. And so that's what God does. God gives them a king. And not only does he just give them a king, he gives them the guy that they would have chosen had it been up to them. God brings forward Saul, a man who is literally head and shoulders above the rest. He's taller than everybody else. He's bigger than everybody else. He's handsome. He looks like a leader. He talks like a leader. He's got a personality like a leader. This is the guy that we want leading us especially when other nations might come against us. And so the people have their king. It's Saul. It's the one that human beings would have chosen had it been up to them. God gives them what they want. And what happens? Disaster. Disaster. They get what they want in the way that they wanted it, and it leads them to ruin. It leads them away from God. And after years of this, God tells Samuel, once again, God says, Samuel, I have rejected Saul as my anointed one, and I have chosen another man, and I want you to go anoint him as the next king. And Samuel says, okay, where do you want me to go? Who is this guy? God says, go to the the little, measly household of Jesse, and one of his sons is going to be the next king. And so Samuel goes. Samuel finds this man named Jesse. And Jesse has lots of sons. And Jesse lines them all up in front of Samuel and says, okay, here here are my sons. And Samuel looks at them and he sees the oldest, the tallest, the most handsome, the strongest. And Samuel says in his head, surely this is the one. And the Lord says, nope, that's not him. He goes down the line. Well, surely this next one is the one. Nope, it's not him. None of these are, are the man that I've I've chosen. Samuel turns to Jesse and says, God told me it's one of your sons. Do you not have any others? And Samuel says, well, yeah, the little runt of the family is off tending the sheep. We left him to do the dirty work while all the important people came here. But I mean, he's, he's, he's not anything fit for the Lord's service. And Samuel says, I will not leave until I speak with this man. So they go and get him. David comes. And when he comes and Samuel sees him, God tells Samuel, this is the one. This is the one. This is the man I have chosen to lead my people. And God tells Samuel, you and everybody else, you guys look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God chose the one that seemed like a nobody to lead his people. And that's what we're talking about today. We're talking about how God chooses nobodies to serve in His kingdom and to do great things for Him. So do you feel like a nobody today? Do you feel like a nobody? Do you feel inadequate? Do you feel small? Do you feel like you're not very smart? Do you feel like you don't have great abilities? Do you feel like you never get picked for the team? Do you feel like you never get picked for the job that's hiring? Kids, what about you guys? Kids, do you guys feel like you're always left out from the important stuff? Do you feel like you can't do what everybody else around you is always doing? You're thinking, I, I must not be very important because I always get left out. I can't do that stuff. Do you feel like a nobody today? Because if so, you are in exactly the right place. The church is a collection of nobodies. A collection of nobodies that God has called to serve Him in His kingdom. And we're going to see that from the text today. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 26. This is such a great and encouraging passage to us, at least those of us who feel like we're nobodies. Verse 26, Paul says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now notice in your text, notice the very first phrase of verse 26. Paul says, consider your calling. That's what we're doing here today. That's what we're doing. We're going to spend this whole sermon time considering our calling. We're going to stop and we're going to meditate on it. And we're going to think about the fact that God has called me, even me, to be one of His children, to serve in His kingdom. That's what we're doing today. We're going to consider our calling. That's what the entire sermon time is for today. If you are a Christian today, think about what you were When God called you. When God called you to Himself, think about what you were. Were you wise according to the world? Were you powerful? Were you influential? Were you born into a family of nobility or celebrity? Probably not. Probably not. I mean, maybe you were. God can call anyone to Himself that He wants, right? Everyone is called to the Lord in a sense. But you probably weren't those things. I know I wasn't. It's not the way God typically goes about it. We were not wise. We were not powerful. We were not born into families of nobility or celebrity. And that's something to rejoice in this morning, brothers and sisters. It's something to rejoice in. Let me show you why. We are like the church of Corinth in this way. Here at Columbia Christian Church. I mean, our church here. We are like the church of Corinth in this way. There's a lot of ways that we might not be like them, but we are like them in this way. Our church is not full of the powerful. Our church is not full of the rich or the influential. This is not a church full of celebrities. I mean, we're in Columbia, Kentucky, for goodness sake. Think about it. This is not the place where we've got all the influential people and all the celebrities and all the, the rich people in the church. now we're a church made up of simple, ordinary people. We're a church made up of nobodies. Most of us are not special or significant in the world's eyes. And that's exactly the way God wants it. It's exactly the way God wants it. Young people... I know what it feels like to want to have significance in the world, to want to change the world, to want to have influence. I know what it feels like to want to be a big deal. I know what that feels like. But you know what's way better than that? Being a nobody for God. It's so much more satisfying than that. And I pray that you could see it. I hope you will especially as you grow older. There is a a peace and a contentment that is wonderful in being a simple, ordinary nobody in service of Christ and His kingdom. Look at verses 27 and 28 with me in your Bibles. Verses 27 and 28. Let me read it one more time. It says, God chose, and it actually uses that word chose. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. You see, God doesn't think, I need someone who's influential to spread my glory among the world. I need someone who's influential to make sure that everybody knows about me. God doesn't think like that. God doesn't think, I need a celebrity to become a Christian so we can make Christianity mainstream. You ever seen this? When, when rumor starts going around that some big celebrity has become a Christian, Christians go crazy. Christians become like piranhas. Like, oh my goodness, there, there's, a, there's a big time celebrity who's going to be a Christian and now everyone will respect us. And now everyone will see that Christianity is legit and that it's mainstream. God doesn't think like that. God's not sitting there saying, I need someone who is rich so the church will have lots of resources at its disposal. No. My friends, God is much more powerful than that. God chooses the weak and the lowly and the foolish on purpose. On purpose. It's like when me and my buddies used to play pickup basketball. All the time when I was young, every free day we had, we were playing pickup basketball at the YMCA or the park in Owensboro. And every now and then you gotta pick teams, right? You got a couple captains and you gotta pick teams. And if it was ever my turn to pick teams, what am I thinking as I'm picking? Well, I want the guy who's the tallest, the fastest, the strongest, the most athletic. I want the guys who are gonna help me win and beat that other team because if we don't win, we don't stay up, right? If we don't win, losers gotta sit. And then the next team comes up. We wanna stay on the court. So I'm going to pick the biggest, fastest, strongest, the best athletes, the guys who are most skilled. But what's God doing? God's standing there and saying, you you go ahead and take all those guys. I want that little guy in the corner that no one wants. I want that girl over there that no one thinks can play at all. I want everybody that nobody wants, and I'm going to win with them. That's what God's saying. That's how amazing God is. God is doing something to where when people see it, they will say, how amazing of a God must that be if He can do that with those people? And, and we are those people. right? And it's, it's something to rejoice at. That God chose us, us nobodies, and He's doing amazing things with a bunch of rabble, a bunch of outcasts, a bunch of castaways, nobodies, and the, the stuff that he's doing, everybody looks at it and says, he must be really amazing if he can do that with them. That's what's going on. That's what he's doing. God chooses the foolish and the weak to shame the wise and the strong. Last week, we talked about how true wisdom and true strength is not what the world thinks. But Paul's taking it a step further here. It's not just that God's wisdom and God's strength is something that the world doesn't understand. No, God will actually choose the people that the world sees as foolish and weak and use them to display His strength and His wisdom. Do you notice in Scripture, if you're a a student of the Bible, have you noticed how often God uses women who were barren an infertile, could not have kids to bring His chosen servant into the world. Have you noticed how often that happens in the Bible? God will use a barren, infertile woman to bring about His chosen servant into the world. Now think about this with me. First of all, they're women. In Scripture, for for, for probably the entirety of Scripture, women were treated as second-class citizens in most societies. Christianity in the Bible, was the only community where women were given a place that was equal to men. Christianity was the only one. Everywhere else, they were treated as second-class citizens, as tools to be used, things to be used. So not only were these women, but they were infertile women, women who couldn't have children. And this is a world where what's really valued is passing on your lineage. And so the women who could have the most kids were the women that everybody thought were, were the most important and the most valuable. And a woman who couldn't have kids at all, everyone looked at her and said, oh, I feel sorry for her husband because she, she can't have kids, right? That was a, the culture that they lived in. Passing on your lineage was like an idol to them back then. Much more important than it is today. But think in Scripture, think about this. Abraham's wife, Sarah, She was infertile until Isaac came. Rebekah was infertile until Jacob and Esau. Samson's mother, infertile until Samson was born. Hannah was infertile until Samuel. Elizabeth was infertile until John the Baptist came along. And Mary, well Mary was a complete virgin, and yet through her comes the Savior of the world. Did you see there in our text how it says God chose the things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are the things that are not women who could not have children did not have the ability to have children it was beyond a shadow of a doubt to anyone they cannot have babies and yet God uses the things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are or take take this story this is a, a fascinating little picture. In Exodus chapter 1, I don't know if you've ever seen this before. In Exodus chapter 1, but Exodus chapter 1 is right before the story of Moses and the ten plagues. Right before that. Okay? They're setting up the story, Exodus 1. The Hebrew people have now come to Egypt. If you remember the end of Genesis, Joseph brought his family to live in, e- in Egypt. To live in the, the, the nicest land of Egypt where there was food and where they could grow crops and where they could have livestock. And the Hebrew people now start to multiply in Egypt. They're they're having lots and lots and lots of kids, and they are growing very quickly. And the Pharaoh of the time realizes it, and he starts to think, this isn't good, because if they rise up against us, they might be too many for us, so I need to thin them out. The Pharaoh takes two ladies, two Hebrew ladies who are midwives. The midwives were the, the ladies who would help other women during labor, the ladies who would help other women have babies during the time where their baby was coming. Okay? So the Hebrew midwives, there's two of them, their names are Shifra and Pua. Those are funny names, but those were their names. Shifra and Pua. And the Pharaoh says to those two midwives, he says, When the Hebrew women are about to have their babies, if it's a boy, you are to kill it. Put it to death. And if it's a girl, you let her live. Well, the Hebrew midwives then go off to do their duty. And what do they do? They disregard Pharaoh's command. They have a fear of the Lord. And so they let everyone live. All lives are precious in the Lord's sight. So they, they let all the babies live. And what happens in Exodus 1? It's something that you might not have taken note of. Shifra and Puah have their names memorialized in the text of the Bible their names are there for everyone to read from now until the end of time in Exodus chapter 1 the most important book the world has ever known the Bible their names are etched in the Bible these two insignificant Hebrew midwives and yet Pharaoh did you know that his name is never mentioned God doesn't even tell us which Pharaoh it is why well because who's really important in God's kingdom. Not the, not the guy that the world thought was the most important, the most powerful, the most influential. He doesn't even get a name. He doesn't even get a mention about who he is, which Pharaoh he is. But Shifra and Pua, their names are memorialized in Exodus chapter 1 for all time. What's truly important to God? God chooses the weak and the lowly, the despised, the seemingly insignificant. To shame those who are in power, those the world considers wise and strong. Years ago, I don't know if many of you will remember this guy, especially those of you who are young, but years ago, there was a a media mogul who started CNN and TBS, you know those TV channels. He started those things, and he was swimming in money. His name was Ted Turner. You might have seen Turner Sports Network or whatever. That's all after him, Ted Turner. Years ago, Ted Turner, in an interview, said, Christianity is a religion for losers. And he wasn't saying it poetically. He was making fun of it. Christianity is a religion for losers. That's where all the losers go. All the the people who are losers go to Christ. The winners don't need that. It's a religion for losers. You know what? He was exactly right. He's right. This is where the losers go. This is where the nobodies come. You feel like a nobody? You feel like a loser? Jesus wants you. The, the creator of the universe wants you. If you're a nobody and you're a loser, if you're not influential, if you're not powerful and not smart, the creator of the universe wants to use you. God says... I want those who have suffered, I want those who have nothing, I want those who feel lonely, I want those who feel unpopular, I want those who feel hopeless, and I want to give them everything. And to the rich and the popular and the powerful, he says, and if you want it, if you want to give up your worldly treasures for me, you're welcome to have it too. You see, this is why Jesus said it's hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. You remember when Jesus said that? It's confused a lot of people over the years. Why is it hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven? Well, it's because they've got to give up something that they treasure to get there. The the poor person, the person who feels like a loser, the person who is a nobody, they're in a sense already where you have to be to come to Jesus, right? Right? That's where you have to be to come to Christ. That's why it's hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. And he could have said it's hard for an a influential, popular person to come to the kingdom of heaven, to, for a powerful person. They've got to give up those things to get there. They've got to renounce them. They've got to say they don't care about them anymore. To come to Jesus, you have to get to a point to where you say, I can't save myself. I'm not good enough. I'm not powerful enough. I don't have what it takes. That's where you have to be to become a Christian, to come to Christ. You have to give yourself to Him and His mercy and His grace and let Him save you. And so in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, Jesus, in the beginning of the Beatitudes, you remember? He says, blessed are the poor in what? The poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean? Poor in spirit means spiritually bankrupt. Like you don't have anything spiritually to give to God. You don't have anything to to, to tell Him, "This this is what I'm offering you. You don't have anything. You're not offering God anything. I'm a nobody. I don't have what it takes. I don't have enough to save myself. Jesus says, blessed are those people. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. God chooses those who are spiritually bankrupt. God chooses the low and the despised, the weak and the foolish of the world. He does this on purpose. To someone who has money and power and comfort, the Gospel message is often not very appealing. Think about it. You share the Gospel with someone who has money and power and comfort, and they say, I have everything I need and anything I want why would I need Jesus? My life is great. Why would I need Jesus? It's hard to convince them of their need for Christ. But think about the flip side to someone who is poor. Someone who doesn't have the necessities of life. Someone who's hungry, needs food and clothing. Think about someone who feels like a loser and an outcast. Someone who doesn't have any friends. Someone who feels the stain of their sin. All throughout Scripture, we see people like this, someone who feels horrible about the things that they have done. To them, the gospel message is the greatest hope that there has ever been. You you mean to tell me that you can take away this guilt I have? You mean to tell me that there's coming a day where I won't be hungry anymore? Where I won't have pain anymore? you mean to tell me that there's a group of people that want me to be a part of their community? Me. You're telling me that? If I can have that in Christ? Absolutely. Right? To the nobodies, the gospel message is a message of great and amazing hope. Now look at verses 29 through 31 with me. 29 through 31. We've talked about this before, but when you read the letters of Paul in the New Testament, kind of help you on your journey as a student of the Bible, when you read through Paul, anytime you come across a connector word, you want to stop and you want to think, how is that word connecting what comes next with what came before? Look at the beginning of verse 29. It says, so that, stop, so that, right? So we know that whatever's coming next is the the purpose for what we just heard in the verse previous. You remember how at times we've seen Paul say the word for, F-O-R, or because, and we're saying that it's a really important causal relationship here with what's going on. Same thing here. Use Use your high school grammar class here. 28, we're talking about God chose what is low and despised in the world, the things that are not. But then 29 says, why did he do it? Why did he do this? There's a purpose behind it. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Now stop and think about this with me for a second. God does this so that no one may boast in His presence. God chooses nobodies. God chooses what's low and despised so that no one can boast. None of us can say, I was someone that was so good that God needed to save me, to have me on His team. Yeah. Yeah. I want to feel good about the fact that God picked me because I was so important. No, this is not about God making much of you. This is about God making much of Himself. God chooses nobodies so that no one will boast before Him, so that everyone will look and see what He's done with His kingdom, with those people. He must be powerful. He must be amazing. He must be awesome. If He can do that with them. And so we rejoice in being a nobody that God has chosen to use in service of his kingdom. In Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23, we read, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord. You cannot boast before God because you were a nobody, that he set his love on. We see a wonderful, beautiful picture of this in Ezekiel chapter 16. You don't have to turn there. I'll just explain it to you. Read it sometime. Ezekiel chapter 16 is an allegory. It's a story that God uses to show us a picture of Israel and its relationship with God. But at the beginning of this story, we see a baby. A baby that has been abandoned by its mother and father. A baby that is left in a field to die wallowing in its own blood. And without anyone coming by and doing anything, it will die. But along comes a man who sees that baby. And he has compassion on it. And he takes that little girl up into his arms, and he takes her home. And he he calls her his own. And he cleans her off. And he nourishes her. And he loves her. And he speaks tenderly to her. And he gives her food. clothing. And she grows up into a beautiful woman. You see, he, He came by and He set His love on her. And because of that, she cannot boast in what she is, because if it weren't for Him and His compassion and His love and His care, she would be dead. She would be nothing. This is us. It's a picture of us, right? We cannot boast before God because we were nobodies that He set His love on. God chooses the weak and the lowly and the foolish so that people will look at God's kingdom and say, God must be really amazing and powerful if He can do that with those people. Think about Gideon in the book of Judges. Gideon shows up in the book of Judges chapter 5, 6, and 7. Gideon was from the least of all the tribes of Israel. His family was the least in that tribe. And Gideon was the least sibling in that family. But God chose him to lead his people against the Midianites and the Amalekites. The Midianites and the Amalekites come against the Israelites in Judges 7. And the story tells us their number, uh, the number of their warriors was as vast and as uncountable as the, the sand on the seashore. So many warriors coming against them. Tens of thousands, possibly a hundred thousand or more coming against the Israelites. God chooses Gideon to lead his army against them. And Gideon rustles up 32,000 men. Not bad. 32,000. At least we have a chance. Maybe we don't have enough, but at least we've got a chance. We've got a good group of guys here, a good group of warriors. And God looks down and says, 32,000. Gideon, that's, that's too much. It's too many. I, I need to thin this out. I need to whittle down this herd. And so God takes them through a series of tests that causes many of the soldiers to leave and not fight anymore. And eventually, God whittles it down to 300 men. Gideon and 300 men. And when they're down to 300, God says, okay, I can work with that. That's something I can use. And what does he do? God uses 300 men to conquer tens of thousands. Why does he do it like that? He says he does it like that so that no one will say the victory belonged to the Israelites. No one will say the strength of the Israelites is what saved them. The only thing people will be able to say is that had to have been the power of the Lord. There's no other explanation. How else could it have happened? That's why God does it. You see what's happening here? God is choosing us nobodies to serve in his kingdom, not because we're awesome but because we're nobodies. And then when He uses us for His kingdom and His glory, everybody looks and says, how amazing must God be if He can do that with them? And and in a a, a crazy thing that doesn't make sense to the world, we love it. We, We love it. I'm here to tell you right now, God did not choose me to be a pastor because of my gifts and abilities. He chose me because he knew that if he did, people will look at that and will say, God's doing that with him? God must be really powerful if he can do that with that guy. When I was little, I was so shy around people I didn't know. I, can, I have vivid memories in my mind right now of being in big groups, big groups of people. I remember a, a wedding specifically in my family where I'd just be in the corner crying because I didn't know a lot of those people. I was scared to death. I was such an introvert, I mean crippled by it. When I got up into middle school and high school, I remember being so afraid, I know this sounds silly to some of you guys who are extroverts, so afraid of the times where people would stand around and talk to each other, and that was all everybody did. Like in the morning when we got to school and everybody's just standing around talking, I was so afraid of that. Or somebody would have like a party and you're just standing around talking to people. I was so afraid. And because of that, even though sometimes I would try, a lot of times I'd just stick my foot in my mouth. I'd say something ridiculous, and people would start making fun of me for it. And, and that became who John Davis was. He's the guy who says ridiculous things and says things that don't make sense, right? And God saw fit to choose that guy to be a preacher and a pastor. Why? Not because everyone was going to look and say, oh, he's he's really good. No, it was because everyone's going to look at that and everyone's going to say, God's doing that with him? That guy? He must really be a powerful God if he can do that with him. Right? And we love it. We love that. We love being a nobody in God's kingdom trying to point everybody else to the the one somebody that is worth all of our attention and all of our, our praise. I mean, think about it. Look at verse 30. Because of Him, because of God, because God chose you, you nobodies, you're in Christ Jesus, who's become to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That all comes from Christ. That all comes from Jesus. The only reason we have that stuff is is because of Jesus. And then verse 31, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You might might hear that word boast and you might think, oh, for Christians, we don't do that, right? We can't can't boast. We don't brag. And in a sense, you're very right, right? God did this so that no one would boast before Him. But there is a way that God calls you to boast. There is a way that God calls you and indeed commands you to boast. And that is in Christ. God calls you and commands you to boast about Jesus. Jesus. Paul says in Galatians 6:14, "May I never boast, may I never ever boast except in the cross of Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me, and I have been crucified to the world." So the only way that we do boast, and indeed you are called to boast, commanded to boast, Christian is in Christ. What do I mean by boasting in Christ? I mean, we just tell everybody, he's awesome. Look at him. Look at how great he is. I'm a nobody that he saved. He's doing this with me. Doesn't that mean he's amazing? Can't you see this? Right? This is our lives. This is what our lives are about as Christians. Let's go tell everybody else how amazing he is because of what he has done for us. We're boasting in the cross. At the cross, I received forgiveness, even though I don't deserve it all the horrible things I've ever done, God forgives me of those things because He punished His own Son Jesus at the cross. And I'm going to boast in that. Boasting in Christ means turning everyone's attention to Him away from yourself. Boasting in yourself is like, look at me, right? That's not what we're called to do. We're called to turn everyone's attention away from us and on to Jesus. We're called to be little John the Baptists. John the Baptist's whole life was about pointing people to Christ. And when his disciples started leaving him and going and following Jesus, and people said, John, aren't you upset at that? And he says, no, that's exactly what I've wanted the whole time. People are leaving me and going to Jesus. People are forgetting about me and going to Jesus. And John 3.30, John the Baptist says, he must become greater, I must become less. Adopt that as a life motto, you guys. He must become greater, I must become less. That's John three thirty. Go look it up at home. Go highlight it with the brightest highlighter that you have. Put it on your door. Put it on the dash for your car. Memorize it. It's easy to memorize. He must become greater, I must become less. That's us. We boast in Christ as opposed to boasting in ourselves. And so this morning, I want to do something a little bit different with you, okay? Typically, you know, I'll I'll say my prayer at the end of the sermon and then we'll go right into our invitation song. But we're always asking everybody to respond, right? Respond to God's God's Word. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to have a time of silent response for you to pray and to to go to God and, and deal with whatever He's put on your heart right now. Whatever is going on in your heart, whatever the Holy Spirit is convicting you of, I want you to spend some time right now, as Dwayne's going to play here in just a second, just some very soft music, kind of like we do in our communion time, and we're going to, we're going to respond to God in our hearts, every single one of us, in our own way. And as, as we do, the Holy Spirit's going to move. Whatever He does, He does. And I don't even know what that's going to be. I might not even see anything about what he does, but I know he's going to be doing stuff in our hearts, even in the hearts of those who are watching with us online. And so as we take this time, respond to God in whatever way he's putting it on your heart, laying it on your heart, respond to him in prayer as we all spend this time in silence. And then after just a bit, I'll come back and we'll stand together and we'll sing our invitation song. But for now, let's pray and respond to God's word on our hearts.